It was about six years ago that Mary Jo presented to me a birthday present. And this birthday present came in a very small box. It was a very little box. Now, sometimes as you get older, you learn that sometimes the best gifts come in small boxes, small packages. The ladies know this intuitively. Us men have to learn it kind of, you know, as we get a little older. What was in this box? It was a beautiful sterling silver ring with an inlaid wood called koa wood. It's a wood that is indigenous to the, the Hawaiian islands, specifically the big island of Hawaii. And it was very special. Mary Jo and I had gone to Hawaii and we had seen this wood. And so, you know, she got me this new ring and there it is right there. Sometimes the best gifts come in small packages. Remember when you were a kid on Christmas morning, you thought the opposite was true. Your eyes were always drawn to the largest package that you could find in the room with your name on it. But as we got older, we realized that sometimes the best gifts come in small packages. In that sense, you could say that sometimes the best gifts come in unlikely packages. We have all been pleasantly surprised by a gift in an unlikely package. Sometimes great things come in unlikely packages because what we are looking for is not the unlikely, but the, but the likely. We expect things to happen in a likely way, not in an unlikely way. If you're, so, you know, this goes against what we're expecting, in other words. So, so there's an expectation of what we're looking for, what we want, and what sometimes happens is an unlikely thing, and that sometimes can be good. Let me put it to you this way. If you were going to change your life for the better tonight, what would you do? If you could just change one or two things about your life, about your situation, what would you do? What would you give yourself? Would you give yourself all the things that you presently feel that you're lacking in? Maybe you would change your physical appearance. Maybe you would change your social status. Maybe you would change your financial situation. Or all the above. These are all, let me say, likely changes. These are all the obvious things. But the issue with these things is really that all of them are a part of the physical world, the physical dimension, and the material world. And the thing is that we see a lot of problems as having to do with what's going on materially. And so we want those things to come into our life that are likely, that are material, that are physical. But God wants us to see that it is the spiritual that he's concerned about. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. What's going on in your heart tonight? Is there salvation there in your heart? Do you have peace in your heart? Do you have joy, the joy of the Lord, in your heart tonight? This is what God wants for your life, but it comes not in a way that we might expect or desire. And it brings us to our text tonight. We're looking at the triumphal, as it's called, the triumphal entry of Christ on, as we have labeled it, Palm Sunday. In the time of Christ, Israel 
was looking for a deliverance from Roman oppression. They were looking really for a military leader. They were, they were looking for a very specific answer to their situation. It was, it was very, what they were looking for was very obvious. It was going to be very obvious of what the solution was going to be, a military deliverer. Going back 200 years before Christ, 200 years before Christ, Israel was being oppressed by a Syrian king named Antiochus Epiphanes. He was a terrible man, to say the least. He was a terrible man. He slaughtered, this is just one thing that he did when he came in and oppressed the Jews in the Holy Land. He slaughtered a pig in the Holy of Holies and made the priest drink its blood. This was an abomination in so many different ways. And yet this is the type of guy that he was. Epiphanes forced Israel into a, into a submission in that sense. And after several years of this, a man named Judas Maccabee, whose name meant hammer, and his brothers decided to go against Antiochus Epiphanes by launching a guerrilla war against him. Approximately nine years later, when Maccabee and his forces miraculously overcame the Assyrian army and drove Epiphanes from Jerusalem, the people spontaneously celebrated by waving palm branches. And from that time on, the back of Jewish coinage depicted a palm branch as a symbol of deliverance from oppression. Here in John's account of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the Jews find themselves in a similar situation. Not oppressed by the Syrians, but this time by the Romans. And they are now wanting to be delivered. And they were waving palm branches as they did before. Only Jesus is going to bring a deliverance in a different way, an unlikely way. And you will see that this same crowd that waves palm branches on Sunday turns on him by the end of the week. But the lesson of this text is that Jesus brings salvation and peace and joy and the things that you need into your life in a different way in an unlikely manner. How does he bring it? He brings it through honoring the Father Submitting to the will of the Father and submitting really to the word of God. And so Jesus shows us this. And this is an example for us because Jesus is our perfect example. And so if he did these things, how much more do we need to learn of these things for our own lives, for today, for 2018? So let's look at this passage and ask God to show us the deliverance that we need and perhaps the unlikely way of living a life that's submitted to God and his word that is really kind of just antithetical to what our world is doing and what our world is seeking after. So if you're taking notes tonight, the first point is this. God's word should determine our steps. Let's pick it up, John 12, verse 12. It says this. The next day a great multitude that had come to the feast... When they had heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. And they cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. And then Jesus, when he had found a donkey, a young donkey, sat on it, 
as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. Therefore, the people who were with him, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him, because they heard that he had done this sign. The Pharisees therefore said amongst themselves, you see that you were accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone out after him. Jesus models perfectly for us that God's word is what should determine our steps. God's word is what should guide us in our life. If we're Christians, if you're a Christian here tonight, if you claim, if you say, I'm a Christian, that's what I identify as, then the word of God is that which should determine the steps. It should determine your walk, your path. The Bible should light our very path. This is, of course, what the Lord tells us in his word, considering the word and believers. Just a couple of scriptures to back up that point. Psalm 37, 23. You'll see it on the screen. It says this. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. Pretty familiar passage. And then another one really familiar. Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. What's that? Your word is a lamp to my feet a light to my path. It's like you're in the dark and it's pitch black. If, you, if you've been in the uh, just absolute pitch black and let's say you had a flashlight or you had your phone and you're like fumbling around, how do I turn this light on? I, I don't know what, you know, and you turn the light on and you hold it down to your feet to see where you're going. This is what the psalmist says about what the word should be in our lives. That the word is that, is that lamp unto our feet. It's the light unto our path. So God's word orders our steps. The Lord orders our steps. His word orders our steps. It tells us which paths to go. It tells us which steps to take. It tells us which paths to avoid. It tells us it's very clear, the word. It's very clear. It tells us what to avoid and what to do. And, 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 and it's, 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 it's great in that sense. Jesus modeled this life of the word perfectly. The writer of Hebrews, as you're familiar with, he tells us that Jesus is what? The author and the finisher of our faith, the perfecter. What that means is that Jesus actually lived out perf perfect humanity. Uh, he, he's the son of God, he put on flesh and he became a human and he lived out absolute perfection as a human being and so therefore becoming the author and the finisher, the perfecter of the faith. And he lived his life perfectly and exactly according to the word of the Lord, the word of the Father. This triumphal entry that we just read about, the entry of Christ into Jerusalem seems contradictory to the way that Jesus had acted up until this point. If you begin in the Gospels and you read, um, especially in the Gospel of John, you come to the second chapter and Jesus finds himself at a wedding, right? In Cana of Galilee. You remember the occasion that, you know, wedding feasts were like a big deal. I mean, they still are a big deal, right? But they were a big, big deal. And the last thing you wanted to have happen at the wedding reception was to run out of wine. And at this particular 
uh, wedding that he was that he's at, they ran out of wine. And what happened? His mother came over to him and said, "Son, Jesus, do something about the situation. They ran out of wine. We need you to do something." He's like, "Mom, it's not a, it's not my deal yet. It's not my situation yet." And they pressed upon him, pressed upon him, and then she turns to the other the disciples, the guys that were there, the men, he says, whatever he tells you to do, do it. And this reluctance or this kind of way of doing things that Jesus did, he did everything in a like kind of a non-pretentious way. He didn't do every he didn't do stuff with kind of a kind of a pomp and circumstance and fireworks and, 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 and all this. He he did it in, in just a way that just kind of stood on its own. Amen? And this is what he did. And so, you know, even, even in John chapter 6, when Jesus uh, famously fed the 5,000, remember the, 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 the crowd, the crowds had come, and the text tells us there were 5,000 men, and so scholars believe that it could have been, you know, many, many thousands of people. And you had the, the, the one young man that brought the, the, the lunch that, with the five loaves and the two fish. And... And so Jesus took the, the, the meal, the lunch from the boy, and he gave thanks for it. And he distributed it to the disciples, and they distributed it to the people, and they fed the multitude, and they all had their fill, and there were 12 baskets full of the stuff left over, one for each disciple to take home a doggy bag, a doggy basket. <laughs> so what happened? On the next day, the people, well, he... He did that, and he kind of slipped out of the crowd as kind of was the way he did things and the kind of unpretentious way he did it. He would slip away to the mountain. The next day, they found him, the crowd. Why? Because they wanted to make him the king. They said, man, this is our guy. This is our guy, a guy that can do this, a guy that can just create food, you know? This is our guy. This is the guy we want to have made king. Then you go over to another example in Matthew chapter 16. When it was revealed to Peter that Jesus was the Christ, the son of the living God, that Jesus commands the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Messiah. So that always kind of perplexed me. Doesn't Jesus want people to know? At that point, it, what, that, he just, you know, he was like, hey, this is kind of low key right now. Low key. So Jesus just did things in a completely unpretentious way, in unlikely, in, in unlikely ways, in, in a way really that was not like we would probably do them in, in kind of, especially today, <laughs> right? Especially today, the way we do stuff with, with just, hey, we're going to do this, we're going to get a crowd, let's just try to stir up everything that we can stir up. Let's get one of those searchlights and put it on the corner and say, hey, come over here, here we are on the corner. no. Jesus didn't do that stuff. He did stuff in a way that, again, it stood on its own weight and merit. And so Jesus, riding into Jerusalem with the crowd singing and cheering and waving palm branches, seems contradictory to the way he, he did things, and it seems contradictory to what he told the disciples. Uh, but nevertheless, this is what happened. The question is, why did it happen? Why did it happen exactly like this? This 
thing that we call Palm Sunday, this thing that we call the triumphal entry of Christ, why did it happen like this? Well, there's two answers to the question, and then we'll get into the explanation of those answers. But, but simply, he walked with the Father's glory before him. And secondly, he walked in full accordance with his Father's word. And so, literally, he was walking and letting the word, because he was the Messiah, because he was the Son of the living God, he literally walked out in the flesh, what the word had said would happen to the Messiah. Hebrews 10, verse 7 says this, Then I said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. This is kind of the testimony of Christ the Son. The book is, it's the volume, it's a volume of a book, and Christ came to do the will of the Lord, the, the Father, that was spelled out in the book for him to do. And he, and he walked it out perfectly. His motive was absolute submission to the Father's word, the Father's will. If you look at the date, the time, and the way that he wrote into Jerusalem, there are at least three Old Testament prophecies that are directly fulfilled. God's word told them how and when Jesus would be announced as the Messiah to Jerusalem. It was spelled out exactly in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament prophets. How he would be announced as the Prince of Peace, the Messiah, the Messiah Prince. We're in Genesis, and we're talking about Jacob right now, right? I want to take you to the end of the book of Genesis when Jacob gathers his 12 sons to his side because this is what fathers did when they were dying. They came and they brought their sons to them to bless them and in, in a sense to prophesy over them. And in Genesis 49, you have a prophecy as Jacob gives a prophecy over each son. In Genesis 49, verse 10, he gives a prophecy over his son Judah, who was actually his fourth born son. And this was the prophecy that Ju uh, Jacob spoke over Judah. I think it should be on, the, on your screen for you. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and until unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Verse 11. Binding his donkey to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he washed his garments in wine, and his clothes in the the blood of grapes. The vine is Israel, and we see that as you go through the, the scripture. In fact, the vine, a symbol, the vine actually became a symbol of Israel. The vine is Israel. The choice vine is Jesus. Jesus reveals this in John 15. I'm the vine, you're the branches, right? Abide in me. And this talks about this donkey's colt, the binding of his donkey to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. And so the peacemaker, the prince of peace, the Messiah prince was coming, and the people were being gathered to him. The vine to the choice vine. That's one. There are more. 
I want to get into one, and this is where I was talking about earlier, of how can you trust that the book, the Bible, is the Word of God? This, what I want to talk to you over the next couple of minutes, is something that I think if, you know, you might, some of you might say, oh, well, it was way over my head, I didn't get it. But I think you need to actually entertain it, hear it, at least once in your life as a Christian, so that you understand that we're not putting our, our faith in a, in a book of fairy tales. We're putting our faith in a book that actually perfectly predicted the future, that things happened according in the life of Christ exactly on the exact day that they were prophesied that they would happen. That's how accurately it was spelled out. So I want to take your attention to a prophecy in the book of Daniel. It's in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 through 27, just a couple of verses in Daniel 9, but it is, is perhaps one of the most powerful prophecies in all of the Bible. It's a prophecy that's called the prophecy, it's called the 77s. The 77s. And let me read it for you, and then I'll just give you a brief explanation. Certainly not an exhaustive explanation, trust me. There's many, many books have been written on this. Verse 24, Daniel 9, says this. 70 weeks are determined for your people, speaking of Israel, and your city, Jerusalem. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again in the wall, even in troubled sometimes. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And the end of it shall be with a flood. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall be the one who makes desolate, even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. Okay, so I want you to focus on really two things. That there was, here was the prophecy, that there was going to be 77s, that a seven is this, a seven is a week. Okay, and it's, there, there are different types of weeks that are spelled out in the Bible. There's a week of days, and there's a week of years. And what he's talking about here is a week of years. It, and so you have a week of years would be, a week of days is how many days? Seven. Seven. Okay, you're paying attention. All right. And a week of years would be how many years? Seven. Seven. Okay. Good. You guys are doing good. Okay. So then it says, and there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks, and the, and the street shall be built again and the wall. And verse 26, and after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. Okay. So if you go back up here, 70 weeks are determined for the people of God, but there's going to be 62 weeks and seven weeks, which is really 69 weeks. All right. And if you do the math, that's 400 and 
483 years. Yes, 483 years. So we know that Messiah is going to come whenever this point, whatever activates the starting point of this, whatever the starting point, it's going to be 483 years and the Messiah Prince is going to come in and be presented to Jerusalem. When's the starting point? Well, the prophecy told us when the starting point would be. Know therefore, and understand verse 25, that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until the Messiah Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So what's that? When's the starting point? The starting point is when the command, the decree is given to go back and rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and the city. That's the command. So, 483 years from that point. Now, Sir Robert, I want to tell you about a guy. His name is Sir Robert Anderson. He led the criminal investigation unit at Scotland Yard in the early 1900s. This guy was like a very, he was a, he was a detective. He was a detective detective. He led the entire bunch of detectives at Scotland Yard in London. His name is Sir Robert Anderson. He wrote a book called The Coming Prince. And he lays out just an unbelievable amount of research on this particular prophecy. And he does the calculations of the years and the days from the command that was given in Nehemiah 2 that we can actually go back and date it because if you read Nehemiah 2, remember when Nehemiah received the command from the Lord to go back and, um, well, actually it was the burden of the Lord that was put upon him for the city because the city lay in ruins, the city of Jerusalem. And the king asked him, well, what's, what's wrong, Nehemiah? And he says, well, Jerusalem's laying in ruins, the temple and the wall. And the, the, the king gives, the Persian king gives a decree for Nehemiah actually pays for it for them to go back with a, a remnant and a detachment to rebuild Jerusalem and the wall. So we can date that particular event according to what Sir Robert Anderson had written in this book and actually according to the research of an archaeologist, Sir Rawlinson, the date of the command to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, the city and the wall, was found in the palace of Shushan. And the command given by King Artaxerxes was given on March 14th, 445 B.C. That's one day after my birthday. Calculating that with the Babylonian calendar of the time, which had 360 days in a year, that comes out to a grand total of, okay, so 483 years by the Babylonian calendar, that comes out to 173,880 days. Okay? So you can calculate, so if the Bible's true, if the Bible is true, you can calculate from the date that Artaxerxes gave the command to 
for them to go back and rebuild the, temp, the, the wall and the city, you can calculate from that date 173,880 days and the Messiah would be being presented to Jerusalem as the Messiah Prince. Okay? If the Bible's true. If the Bible's true. According to Luke chapter 3, verse 1, Jesus began his ministry in the 15th year of the reign of Caesar Tiberius. Caesar Tiberius began his reign in 14 AD. So Jesus began his ministry in the fall of AD 28. And so Jesus would have then celebrated four Passovers with AD 32 being his last. And so 173,880 days later from March 14th, 445 BC brings us to April 6th, 32 AD. This is the date that Christ made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And we know that this marked the beginning of the final week before the crucifixion. And this happened in an exact fulfillment of the word of God. There was, a, there was a psalm written about this way before, hundreds, of, maybe, maybe a thousand years before Christ. There was a psalm written about this. And I grew up in church singing a song that was based upon this verse of scripture. And here's the verse, Psalm 118, verse 24. You'll see it on the screen. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Now, nothing wrong with getting up every day and singing this song about today. Amen? Why? Because today's the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. But that's not what the psalm is talking about. The psalm, the context of this psalm is about the triumphal entry of Christ. This is the exact day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it because according to a, a prophecy that was given in the mid-500s BC and, 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 and calculated from an exact command of a, of, a, of a foreign king to rebuild the city of Jerusalem on the exact day, Jesus Christ rode into Jerusalem, presented himself as the Messiah Prince on the back of a donkey. Wow. Amen. Amen. In Zechariah 9, verse 9 and 10, it says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So what was the crowd singing on that day? Of course, they were, bringing, they, were, they were waving the palm branches. Why were they waving the palm branches? Their, their expression really was more about yearning for the likely package that they were looking for. They wanted the, the, the deliverer. They were looking for a freedom, someone to deliver them from the Roman uh, oppression. And so their minds more than likely hearkening back to the, the revolt of the Maccabees and how they overcame uh, epiphanies and saying, now this is the guy that's going to do it. Let's get, let's get the palm branches going, right? Let's wave the palm branches. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They cried, Hosanna, which means Mary Jo had brought it out, means save us now, save us now, save us how? 
save us from these Romans. Deliver us from these Romans. But remember, God wants to do, God has something he wants to do that might be the, the thing, it's, un, it's an unlikely thing. It may be not the thing that you're looking for, but it's the exact thing that you need. And that's what he wants to do in you spiritually. He wants to bring true salvation to your heart. He wants to bring true peace to your heart. He wants to bring true joy and the joy of salvation into your life and have you walk with him in that type of peace, in that type of walk. That's what he wants to do. And so he came. And he presented himself as a Messiah Prince, fulfilling the word of the Lord. You see, Jesus knew these scriptures. Jesus knew the Zacharias and the Psalms and the prophets. I mean, this is the same Jesus who was asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. So if he's making that type of a, a, a situation, a, a, a sentence, certainly he knows the law and the prophets. He knows the text. And so he's completely submitted to the will of the Lord, the word of God. And it has literally ordered his steps. And Christian, that is exactly what the Lord would say that is needed in our lives. What is it that you would change about your life? What we need to do is we need to make sure that we're submitted to his will, that we're submitted to his word, that it is his word that is ordering our steps, that it is his word in our life that is lighting our path and, and, and just kind of illuminating that next step on the path. Amen? And if that's going to be the case, then we need to be people of the word. We need to be in the word. Amen? So important. If the, if the crowd was expecting, and I'm drawing to a close. What time is it? I can't see the, the clock. Quarter till. You still with me? Yeah. All right. Drawing to a close. The crowd, if the crowd was looking for a military deliverer, if you're, okay, if you're going to have a military deliverance to, that would throw off the Roman oppression, You're going to either need some supernatural power that's going to just kind of almost like, you know, Jesus coming in with like, you know, Jedi force, like, you know, right? <laughs> Blowing back those droids or whatever. Or you're going to need a military. You're going to need an army. You're going to need some men on horses, Right? And so perhaps in the back of their mind, at least some of them were thinking this. I mean, Peter, just a few days from now, will be in the garden wielding a sword, cutting off a guy's ear. Jesus has to pick the ear back up and put it back on. So they were possibly looking for some organization from Christ, from Jesus, to, to get some type of a military situation going. And this is exactly what would seem natural to look for. A military, horses, 
The crowds were expecting horses. Jesus came on a donkey. <laughs> Unlikely. Unlikely. Not the way. <laughs> Not the way we would have done it. And I want to close with this interesting twist. A question to us. If we're going to be people of the word, like Jesus was the people, a person of the word, and modeled it for us, should we be like a horse or a mule? A horse or a mule? It's a trick question, actually. Is that the question on the screen? A horse or a mule, question mark. It's actually a trick question. I'm going to read a ver couple verses of scripture for you. Beginning in Psalm 32, verse 8. This is one of Mary Jo's favorite verses. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. You see, there's a way that the Lord wants to lead us in our lives. There's a way that he wants to guide us. There's a way that he wants to bring us along through your life and whatever's going on in your life. If there's turmoil or if it's great or whatever, you've got a big question mark that you need to have answered. There's a way that the Lord wants to lead you. And he, and he doesn't want to lead you in a way that you would have to if it was a horse or a mule. Because the text says here, do not be like a horse or a mule be, without, without understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle. So in, in other words, to get those animals to go where they're going, you have to have some apparatus that, that is used to bring them along the path. And God says, no, I don't want you. I, I, that, that's not, what, that's not what, how I've called you. That's not what I want for your life, Christian. What, what I want is verse 8. I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will guide you with my eye. I will guide you with my eye. Now here's what that's talking about. I could actually guide every one of you right now with my eye. How could I do that? If you look intently at my face right now and I looked at you and I looked at you in such a way and I said <laughs> I wouldn't need to say anything you're being guided with my eye because you're looking upon my face that's exactly how the Lord wants to lead us he wants us to come face to face with him. Moses, the Lord met with Moses as a, with a friend face to face. He met with Abraham face to face. He wants to meet with you. He's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. He wants to meet with you face to face. He wants to lead you with his eye. Not as a donkey, not as a horse or a, a mule, but as a person who is in relationship with him, looking to his face, being led by his eye, being guided by his word, a lamp unto his feet. And this is exactly how Jesus 
modeled so perfectly for us. How's that? Because some little thing tucked away in a couple places in the Old Testament about the Messiah coming into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. If you go back to John 12, the end of the text says that when it was all happening, none of the disciples were going, oh, hey, Andrew, James, come here. Judas, come here, come here. Philip, Nathaniel, come here. Look what's happening. We're going in Jerusalem. Jesus is on a donkey. Zechariah. All these other, yeah, the prophecy. No, they didn't know about it. It wasn't until after he was glorified, the text tells us, that it all came back to them and said, oh, wow. Oh, wow. And how would that have spoken to them about how they needed to be led in their lives? And so the challenge for us tonight is this. On this Palm Saturday is being a person who is, has a submitted life, living a submitted life to the will of the Lord, to the word of the Lord, and allowing the word of God to be that guide and that lamp unto our feet.